One of my great privileges as a pastor is is both to spend time with those who are getting ready to be baptized and actually to baptize them. We have a class we call the baptism class. That's pretty creative. Uh, we, we want people to understand what baptism is biblically and and uh, we want to make sure that as best we can, humanly speaking, obviously only God can do this ultimately, but we want to make sure that they do know the Lord as their Savior and they're uh, making an intelligent commitment to Him of obedience. And uh, we have them write their testimonies uh, in part so that I can find out what they really think because when people put their thoughts on paper, their, uh, their real their real thoughts come out and and then sometimes we use those as teaching points to help clarify what they believe and and what they understand and uh this last week brandon said i was in his in his written testimony i wasn't ready to be baptized but now i'm ready to be baptized and then he kind of ended right there and i said well it'd be good if you would explain that a little bit i think i know what you mean but maybe some other people won't and what he said basically nailed the heart of the issue right on the head, which is when we get baptized, we are publicly proclaiming that we believe in Christ and that we are followers of his, not just not just folks who say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, and then leave it and go on their merry way and don't live for the Lord. And even at 12 years old, Brandon has, has, has been mature enough to know that until now, he wasn't ready to say, I'm going to live for the Lord on a regular basis. So I appreciate and I admire that understanding and that desire both to commit and say, yes, I'm going to live for the Lord now. It's the right thing to do. We might say that Brandon has made a decision to let Jesus drive his life. I called my sermon today, The Jesus-Driven Life, as we look at John the Baptist in the first chapter of John. Two Johns that are being spoken about here. One is the author of this gospel. He's the Apostle John. And then the one who is being, the John being spoken of, of course, is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And we want to read about him in verse 29 through 37. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. I want to talk to you about the Jesus-driven life because it seems to me that John the Baptist was driven by Jesus. Jesus Christ regulated his life. It was what his life was about. And the first thing that we see here from the example of John the Baptist is the attitude of the Jesus-driven life, which is one of humility. Humility is not 
spoken of much as a virtue in our American society. Pride is considered to be a virtue, standing up for yourself, tooting your own horn. When I was young, we had a family friend who used to poke fun to me, and I didn't know it because I was too young to understand. And he said, Dave, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. And I thought, well, sounds like pretty good advice, you know. Took me a few years to get that out of my head. Tooting your own horn is not godly. And especially when it comes to your eternal soul. John the Baptist lived his whole life under, if you will, the person of Christ. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, here's John saying, This is he, talking about Jesus, This is he of whom I have said, Quote, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, or he is more important than me. Now, it's significant in that culture that he would say, after me. John the Baptist was physically born about three months or so, or six months perhaps, before Jesus was born. In their society, for John to be older than Jesus would mean he had more status, he was more important. You know, respect your elders, and certainly only a few months shouldn't make that much difference, but he alludes to that when he says, look, he came after me. In other words, he is, he's younger than me, but I said he is more important than me, verse 30. Why? Because he existed before I did. And that can only mean one thing when John is talking about it in the context of this whole chapter is that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God before he took on a human body. And so, yes, Jesus took on a human body after, Jesus was, after John was born, but he has existed in all of eternity. He said, this one is more important than me. Look at verse 27, back up a little farther. John says this, It is he who is coming after me, who is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. For those of you that weren't here when we went over this text a few weeks ago, the lowest slave or servant in a house in that day was given the job of taking people's sandals off and washing their feet when they came in the door. And we have men's Bible study at my house two nights a month, and some of the men come in and take their shoes off, and I say, hey, don't, don't worry about that, guys. We got 30-year-old carpet here. It's no big deal. But I'm telling you what, I am not washing their feet. <laughs> John said, I am lower than the lowest slave in the house. That was his, when he looked at Jesus, that's how he saw himself. Now that's not John belittling himself. That's not John saying he had no value, no importance, because John had a very important ministry, and John knew that. But John said, compared to Jesus, I am the lowest person in the house. Look at verse 15 of John 1. John bore witness of Jesus and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He says it again. Three times this is quoted of John as being said. And then, of course, um, you know, uh, here, here he says it again. Why was John so humble before Jesus? 
I would submit to you it's because of what Jesus has done. Now, he had not done it yet in the time of John, but John knew what was coming. As he looked at Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. These verses written later from Colossians tell us what it means that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That passage of Scripture has so many truths in it about us and about what Jesus has done for us. And let me just summarize it down into a couple of truths. Number one, what Jesus has done for us makes it possible that we do not have to go to hell. Uh, uh, Brandon so clearly, uh, or excuse me, uh, Jathan so clearly grasped that in his testimony. He said, I don't want to live with Satan when I die. I want to live with God. What a great blessing that is for us to be able to know in our hearts. For a six-year-old, is he six? Is Jathan six or seven? He's eight. For an eight-year-old to know certainly in his heart that he's on his way to heaven. That certainty does not come from him. He's a fine young man, but he's not that good. And my certainty does not come from me because I'm a fine old man, but I'm not that good either. The certainty comes from God. Because when we put our faith in Christ, God puts a new life within us, and we look up to heaven and say, I'm ready to go. That is our great privilege. The apostle, excuse me, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, he's going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to make it possible that we can live with God in heaven forever. And secondly, he's going to make it possible that we can have a a rich, meaningful, growing life now. In Colossians, the scripture put it in a couple of interesting ways. He said he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. The power of darkness is that power of Satan and of sin in our lives which keeps us from being genuinely good people. We can only be good people when God does a work in our lives. And so when John the Baptist looked at Jesus as the Savior of the world, he said, I can't do anything else except be humble before him. I am down here and he is up there. I will humbly obey him. The action of the Jesus-driven life is obedience. Look at John's examples of obedience, starting in the first part of this chapter, verse 6. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. When we think about John's obedience, the first thing we understand is John followed God's agenda. When you look at your life and you're trying to evaluate, is your life Jesus-driven or is it driven by you? The first point to ask is, whose agenda do you follow? I I have a little day timer here. I discovered this through some mass mailing, probably, when I was first in the ministry. And it's a little book on which I write my appointments. If you call me or see me after church and say, let's get together on Tuesday, I write it right down because I have a great memory, but it's short. This is my agenda for the week. And then on the front, I have the really hot items, which is yellow sticky notes with little notes written on there, things I have to remember, you know, money I spent or things I need to get. That is my agenda, humanly speaking. I want to ask you, what's your agenda? Is it yours or God's? John the Baptist had one single thing written on his to-do list, and it was, obey God do the mission he gave me to do. Are you Jesus-driven or are you Dave-driven or Sue-driven or Glenn-driven or Chuck or Don or Daly? Or, who's driving you? You or God? That is the great point at which we start to understand whether we are Jesus-driven or whether we are driven by ourselves. Not only did John follow God's agenda, but he followed it constantly. Look at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? We talked about this in previous weeks as well. They came and said, who are you? He was becoming famous, baptizing a lot of people. He was preaching out in the desert. I mean, the scripture says everybody in that region was baptized. I mean, he had the biggest church anywhere, if you will. And so the religious leaders came to say, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, nope. Are you the prophet? No. Then they said to him, who are you? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That is a critical point in John's life. John was not a saint of some kind who could not be tempted with sin. He was a human being like you and I who could have looked at that opportunity and said, you know what? I can be, some, I can be something right now. I can become something great. These people think I'm the Messiah. In another one of the Gospels, it says, everybody was going, you think John's the Messiah? You think John's the Messiah? If he'd have stood up and said, I'm the Messiah, boom, he would have had a following just like that. But John didn't do that because he was Jesus-driven, not John-driven. He followed God's agenda constantly. Thirdly, John followed God's agenda blindly. Now be careful as I talk about this, because I'm not, I'm not talking about an uninformed faith. God's Word has much to say that informs our faith, but there are times when we don't know all of the answers. And look at one of them for John in verse 31 that we just read a little while ago. I did not know him. In other words, I did not know who he was. I did not know that Jesus... Now, Jesus was a cousin to John. Through, their, through the mothers, okay? Um, 
But he did not know he was the Messiah. I did not know him. But that he should be revealed to Israel, that's why I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me, God the Father, to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means, friends? That John went out into the desert, and we don't know how long he was out there, and how long he was baptizing and preaching, get ready, the Messiah's coming, repent, let go of your sinful ways and start living righteously according to what God has already told us and get ready for the Messiah. We have no, long, no idea how long he was out there. And he didn't know who the Messiah was or when he was going to come. That's kind of like Abraham in the Old Testament when, when God said, Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Abraham didn't know where he was going. God said, you pack everything up and start moving, and, when, and on the way, I'm going to show you where to go. That, if there was ever a picture of the Christian life, that's it, friends. Because here's what God tells us. It's all of this stuff in his word. But beyond that, he says, now you take this up and start walking, and then I will guide you along the specific steps. And that's what John the Baptist did. He said he knew he was supposed to preach, make way, you know, get ready for the Lord. He knew that he was supposed to baptize people. And he said, and God told him, when you see the Spirit descending and staying on somebody, the Spirit in the form of a dove, when you see that, you'll know that's the guy. And so I expected every day John got up and said, wow, I wonder if I'm going to see him today. And he's baptizing people. He's looking around, and one day, God made an appearance through the Holy Spirit that looked like a dove, and he came down, and he went, that's the guy. John followed God's agenda blindly. He knew part of God's agenda, and we do too, but you do not know the exact path God will lead you on through that agenda. John gives us a great example of obedience. And then Christ calls for our obedience Listen to Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to deny yourself. I, I wish, well, I won't even say that. Sometimes it's fun to think about preaching something that everybody would like to hear. Because everybody just be all excited. Oh, that's just the nicest church and that's just the nicest pastor. Oh, he just says the nicest things and I just feel so good when I come out of there. Oh man, you got to go there. You're going to feel good. You're in the wrong place if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> but the reason is because it's the same message for me that it is for you. I don't get to do everything I want to do. I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking about serving the Lord as I walked through the church and I saw people doing things. You know, there are some things, even in the church ministry, that are just plain fun. Having a big old banquet and having Lydia and her compadres, or should I say her, her, her comrades from Russia, to to cook us this great dinner and we sit down and eat and then we get up and leave and the college-age folks under Jeff and Susan's leadership clean it up. Man, that's fun! 
I can do that tonight. Let's do it. Yeah, no. There, there are things that are just plain fun, and that's okay. There are things in your life that are just plain fun. But there's times when we're going to have to deny ourselves if we're going to follow Christ's agenda for our life. There are some things you're going to have to say no to. As I think about what drives life, I think of, of, a, of a whole series of words like, like this one, pleasure or fun. I love to have fun. I love to you know, eat good food. I love to take a drive, you know, whatever. I love to have fun. But there are people in the world who are driven by pleasure. They only work so they can have money to buy toys. And, the, and, and, and work is all about getting time off so they can have some fun. They just endure the work. They're all, about, they're all driven by pleasure. Some people are driven by pleasing others, taking care of kids. Their whole life's about taking care of their children or, or keeping the wife or the boss happy or meeting the boss's expectations or, or, or the team or the organization or whatever it is. Some people are driven by pride. They want to wear certain clothing so they get compliments. They want to work in a certain way so that they get recognitions. They want to, they want to do a certain sport because they know they can earn a trophy or an award. And it's all about pride. Some people are driven by power. You know, I, I think there probably are some very good politicians in our country, and I think there are some that are driven by power. They want to be in that position where they, they can make things happen, or at least where they think they can make things happen. And Sometimes people are driven by power on much smaller scales, whether it's at work, you know, and people have their little turf, and they control that, and you better not get in there. Because they're driven by power. Some people are driven by possessions. Their house has to be the nicest one on the block or in the family. You know, their their car can't ever look dirty. They don't drive their car in the rain. You know, or whatever it is, because they they value stuff so much. Some people live their lives with the goal of protecting others. They 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 derive status and esteem from being the protector, from being the helper. God says, I'm calling you to follow me, which means you're going to have to deny some of your own desires. It doesn't mean that you'll never have joy in life. It doesn't mean that you'll never do some great things. I think I have a pretty good life. I love it. I enjoy it. But I don't get to make my to-do list. God does the effect of the Jesus-driven life, what is the impact? Or if we were to ask this question, why? Why should you cross off the things on your to-do list and put follow Jesus only? Turn with me to Luke 16. Luke 16 and verse 19. In Luke 16, 19... we hear about the most important reason to let Jesus drive your life. Luke sixteen nineteen. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. To have purple clothing in that day was very expensive because the dye was not easy. And, you know, typically like a king would have purple or people that were very rich. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and he fared sumptuously every day. No lean days at his house. 
It was great stuff every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. In that day, in part because of some restrictions God had put on his people, when people got certain diseases, they had to be separated. They had to go stand outside the gate of the city, and they had to be separated from the most of society. And here, this beggar was brought to beg at this rich man's gate. Verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. He couldn't even shoo the dogs away. That's how, how physically pathetic he was. He was just, just overcome with illness. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The story just had a great turn, didn't it? His, his suffering's over, isn't it? He's, he's in, that's what God called the place of, of blessing before Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and made it possible for us to go into the presence of God. Up until that time, the believers, the good believers in God, went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades... He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, You receive your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's that's almost a prophecy, isn't it, of what happened with Jesus? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and the sons of Abraham still didn't turn, did they? I want to tell you the number one reason why you ought to let Jesus drive your life is the Jesus-driven life will result in your salvation. Now, I'm not talking about earning your salvation. And I hope you don't get from this passage here that if a person lives in hell on earth, they get to go to heaven when they die. That is not what God is teaching us here. He is simply teaching us that there was a believer who was beggarly poor, and there was an unbeliever that was extremely rich. And the unbeliever in his lifetime should have stopped and said, you know what? Something's missing in my life. My money isn't going to cut it for me. And he should have put his faith in God. 
But he chose not to do that. And so when the day of their death came, their fortunes were reversed, not because of merit, not because they had earned a spot in heaven, but because they had failed to have faith in God while on earth. Why should you let Jesus drive your life? Because he is the person who is going to bring you salvation. I ran across a little article that was a, uh, a snippet of an interview between Dan Rather on 60 Minutes and Jack Welch, who used to be the CEO of General Electric. And he'd written a book on winning. I think it's used to. I'm not sure if he's still the CEO or not. He'd written a book called Winning. And at the end of this interview, Dan Rather said to Welch, what's the toughest question you've ever been asked? And Welch thought for a moment, and he responded, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? That was the toughest question he'd ever been asked. And Dan Rather said, how'd you answer the question? I, I find that fascinating that they'd even ask that and broadcast it on TV. And the CEO said, it's a long answer. But I said that if caring about people, if giving it your all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple times and no one's proud of that, I haven't done everything right all the time, but I think I've got a shot. I'm in no hurry to get there and find out anytime soon. Do you think you've got a shot? <laughs> Friend, I don't want to play that kind of fast and loose with eternity. I want to know that whenever I close my eyes for the last time on this planet, I will open them and there will be God. And I want to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, I know that, that, that Brandon was a little nervous today. That's why he didn't answer right away because I know we've talked several times about this and he very certainly believes in Christ as his Savior. But I want to ask you right now, do you know for certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And what's the first thought that came to your mind? Was it, absolutely. Was it, I hope so. Was it, well, I've got as much of a shot as Jack Welch. Was it, I don't know and I don't care. The reason you should let Jesus drive your life is because the first thing He is going to do for you is give you eternal salvation and you are going to know in your heart that you're on your way to heaven. The second reason that you ought to let Jesus drive your life is this. The Jesus-driven life results in a meaningful life. Look back at John chapter 1, please. And look what John's privilege was. In verse 35. The next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, this is after he's already announced him and already recognized him once. Looking at Jesus, again, if you will, he saw him again and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. John had a tremendous gathering. And when he recognized Jesus for the first time, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, it's as though 
John was the opening act on a stage, and, and here comes the main act, the real thing, and John's walking off going, there he is, there he is, see you folks. Now John's going to have a little more ministry. We're going to see him again before this is over in the next couple of chapters. But he's practically done, and he's saying, there he is, there he is. And, and when these two disciples, they're standing with John, here comes Jesus, and he goes, there's the Lamb of God. And they said, okay. Now think how hard that must have been for John. If you've ever been in charge of anything, if you've ever led people, if you've ever drawn people into an organization, if you will, and then now it's your job to send them off with some other leader, that's tough. That shows me how committed John was to Jesus, but it also shows me how committed he was to other people and to blessing their lives because what good would it have done for those people to keep following John? No good. They needed to follow Jesus. And that is the greatest meaning, the greatest meaning that can come to our lives. Think about this. What's the greatest thing you can do for another person? Think about your children. Think about your children for a moment. You know, you, you get that call, time to have a baby. Zoom, you're at the hospital. There's a baby. Oh, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to clothe you. Go spank your little bottom, you know. And you think, I, I'm going to take care of this baby. And, and uh, you know, when it's time for you to have music lessons, I'm going to send you to Mary Ann. She's the best, you know. And, you know, all this stuff. What's all, you know, we think about all those things we could do for our kids. What's the greatest thing you could do for your kids? What's the only thing that matters, really, is bringing them to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I know you can't do that completely you have that god has to be at work there but you can be a, a a minister to them a servant to them and you can get great phone calls from your kids as they're talking about their life in the lord you know um two of my kids have career jobs one of them is in the ministry that you know it's great to hear from my son talking about the ministry i'd rather hear from him just talking about the lord and i do does it matter what he's wearing? No, it doesn't. Does it matter what he's driving? No. What about other people around you? What's the greatest thing you could do for another human being? Give him a job? Oh, that's a great thing. Give him some clothes? Sure, there, there's times like Hurricane Katrina, we need to do that for people. I, I believe that. What's the greatest thing you could do for another person? Last week I did a wedding for a young lady that was in my church in Tukwila. And, and uh, a lot of the folks from the Tukwila church were there. And uh, that, you know, it was fun just to see all those people. But one of those people was somebody that, that I had the privilege of leading to the Lord. A firefighter. I met him in his fire department. I was serving as chaplain. And he walks up to me and he says, my family and I are looking for a church. And I said, well, I've got one. And I didn't know anything about him at all. Eventually, he came to faith in Christ. He was discipled, and he became a deacon in our church. And now he's gone on to another church. But he said to me, thank you for the things that you taught me, the substance. He, talked about, he compared what he learned with what he's been learning other places. And he says, thank you for the substance. Here he is, walking with the Lord. Is there anything that I could have done in that era in my life that would be more important than that? 
Is there anything that could be more meaningful? I mean, I, you know, I, we crashed three cars during that time. I don't remember which one I was driving. You know, I know which one I crashed and which one's the boy crashed, but uh, I don't know what the clothes I was wearing. I don't know. I mean, I know what the, I remember the house because we lived there for 15 years and, and it wasn't much of a house and we longed to get out of it. Does it matter? No. How great is it to have that guy come and say, thank you for investing in my life. Now, friends, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm trying to say, look, you can do that. You can have people walk up to you and say, thank you for investing in my life. And how much meaning does that bring to life? And I don't say that proudly, and I don't want to tempt you to be proud and arrogant. But this is the meaning that God intends for our life to have. First of all, I know that I'm going to heaven. Second of all, I know that I am making a difference in the world. Now, I'm not making a huge difference. There aren't 20,000 people here this morning. But I'm making a difference in the world. And I'm making a difference in some lives. And that counts for eternity. I don't have to, you know, hit 49 years old and look around and think, well, I better get a red sports car and get a new wife, you know. I couldn't get one that's prettier or smarter. (laughs) I could get one younger, but I'd probably be in trouble. (laughs) Folks, we're talking about real meaning in life. Not the stuff that evaporates away, not the fame of the world. We're talking about real meaning. And that's what God wants to bring to your life. And as if that isn't enough, the Jesus-driven life not only results in a meaningful life now, it results in a heavenly reward. You see, not only is our existence not over now, but our meaning isn't over now. Listen what's going to happen to us in the future. For no other foundation can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, your life has to be built on the foundation of faith in Christ. There's no other place to start. You don't earn heaven. You start with faith in Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, again, you're not working your way to heaven, but you're you're building, you're doing things for God as a Christian. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. We don't have time to look at all of the relevant scripture, but from this passage and others, we understand that for the Christian now, Not talking about for unbelievers. For the Christian, someday we will stand before God in heaven, not in judgment, not in punishment, but in reward of every righteous act we have done. Everything we have done to build our own character, to be like Christ according to God's word, everything we have done to build into other people, God is going to take the fire of his holiness and apply it to our life, and everything that is true righteousness will stay. It will, it will survive that examination. And when it's done, God is going to pat us on the back and say, good job, here is a reward. Now, humanly, frankly, I look at that and I think, You know, just going to heaven is enough. I don't need a reward. 
But when I read at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, here's what I find out. I find out that we're going to cast our crowns at His feet. And so we live for God now by His power and strength. Then He rewards us, the Bible says, with crowns as one of the kinds of reward. And then we can take that crown and throw it at His feet and say, Thank you, Jesus, for helping me to do something meaningful with my life. We'll be able to worship God in a new and special way because of those rewards. I know it goes without saying, but we need to say it anyway. God isn't going to take note of how big or how shiny your car was. He's not going to look down there and say, Wow, you drove the biggest Hummer money can buy. Come on in. I I know we know that. You know, I've heard of people being buried with some of their money, literally. I don't know what people are thinking. Maybe just a last act of prideful arrogance to put it in the face of everybody who comes to the funeral. I don't know. We know we aren't going to take it with us. God is not going to be impressed with the designer clothes you wore. He's not going to be impressed by the trophies on your mantle. But he will take note of every single act of righteousness you do. One of the first regular jobs that I had was as a janitor. It was a great, flexible job in the evenings while I was going to college. Five nights a week, I did the same thing every night. Cleaned the same, swept the same floor, scrubbed the same toilet, cleaned the same desks. And that was back in the day when people smoked at work. And one of the desks that I cleaned was covered with ash every night. I mean, I, uh, the whole thing, you know, it was probably five feet long and two and a half feet wide. It looked like they took the ashtray, dumped it out, and went like this. And no kidding, it was literally covered with ash. every. And I cleaned it, cleaned the whole thing every single night. <sighs> Having to clean the same thing over and over can be a discouraging task. Isn't that right, moms? If you think about it, every job in the world is routine. You know, Chuck's a guard at the border. Let me see your passport. Let me see your driver's license. Yeah, go over there. I'm going to hassle you for a while. Come on, you know. <laughs> Glenn works up the water district up at, uh, up at uh, Birch Bay there, you know. He lives for Wednesdays when they get to lock people's water off, when they don't pay their bill, you know. But every Wednesday, it's the same thing. Don sells Bible software on the phone from Logos Software, you know. Great, commendable thing, but same thing every day. Different people, same thing, right? You know, I mean, I I study and preach a sermon every week, you know, or two or three or whatever. Everything in the world's got a certain amount of routine to it, and everything in the world can be boring and dull if that's all your life is about. But your life doesn't have to be about that. Whether you're cleaning up somebody's cigarette butts or whether you're the President of the United States, your life can have real meaning, eternal meaning. No matter how exotic some lives may be there, everybody is just running in circles, going nowhere unless Jesus is driving them. I want to challenge you to consider who or what is driving your life 
as I sing a song in conclusion today. This is my heart's cry I want to know the one who saved me and gave me life this is my heart's cry to be so close that all my life becomes a testimony of my Savior's grace and This is my heart's cry, this is my heart's cry, much more than just a great desire, it's like a fire in me, I hear my heart cry, each time I think about the cross where Jesus died, the cross should have been mine. But his love broke the time And heard my heart cry He heard my heart cry Now every other hope and dream Lost inside of this one thing To know the one who died for me And live my life for Jesus Christ is my heart's cry. So let my life become a testimony my Savior's grace and love. This is my heart's cry to stand before the Father one day and hear Him say, Well done. This is my heart's cry. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, even as I sing those words, I know that they aren't 100% true in my life. I know there are times when I let my list drive me and not your list. Father, help me to say no to myself. Help me to deny myself. Take up my cross and follow you. Father, I pray for all these people here that you will help them catch a vision for what their life could be in you, for the meaning it could have in you, for the blessing that could be theirs both now and for eternity. And I pray that you'll work in hearts today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.